Hey everybody, just putting a precursor before this episode, there is some language involved, um, a few, you know, choice words that are, you know, considered like maybe like swear words or um, words that are typically um, kind of deemed in, you know, different fashions, but those words are used. Um, it's a little bit more passionate of an episode. So if those things do offend you, then please, uh, you do not have to listen or make sure you have somebody, uh, near you that could be helpful, um, in those situations. I just wanted to make sure I put a type of trigger warning before this episode begins. Uh, but I'm super excited to, uh, let you hear this episode. It's a really great one. Uh, should have been out a little bit, uh, earlier, but you know, Honestly, just things have been uh, very busy and um, a lot of things have been going on, but I am doing my best and really uh, trying to stay as consistent as possible with posting every week. Um, Hopefully in these next few weeks, we will get even better with that. Uh, But thank you so much for just listening and for any of the the greatness that you all show and just being um, amazing listeners and enjoyers of the podcast. So I will see you all later. Uh, You know how to contact me. Uh, the forensics guy on pretty much every platform. So hit me up, uh, especially TikTok, because my TikTok is growing and I'm super excited. Anyway, uh, see you all later. Have a wonderful day and enjoy the episode. What's up, y'all? It's Dante, a.k.a. The Forensics Guy, and you are listening to The Forensics Experience, the podcast where we discuss topics in the speech and debate community with the world's most influential coaches, students, and alumni in the activity. Today... Like any other day, except today's a little different. I am super, super, super honored to be sitting with an amazing coach, Devin Cooper. I can say so many things about him, but I'm going to let him get the opportunity to tell you all just what he is and what he does for the community. Go ahead, Devin. Hello. So I am currently the director of debate at Cal State Long Beach. Um, So pretty much coach college debate right now, but I also work with the Lambda, which is the LA Metro debate league. And then in the summer, I pretty much at at this moment have exclusively decided to work only for UDL camps, which are urban debate leagues. Awesome. Yes, man. That's amazing. Um, And I think that you are the perfect guest to talk about some of the topics that we're going to talk about. Um, I usually I give some type of precursor to exactly what we're going to talk about, but I think we're going to end up switching a few from topic to topic for the most part. So um, I'll definitely let the audience get to just kind of listen in. Um, and uh, before we probably dive to some stuff that's going to be probably a little bit too serious, uh, one of the first things that I've been thinking about recently that I would love to hear some opinions from some other coaches, especially you from, is I want to talk about the burden of speech and debate. Mm -hmm. overall, I think, you know, obviously we know speech and debate is an amazing activity and it is doing some amazing things for some students. I mean, we can literally just look at like famous people currently from Oprah to Jim Belushi to every, like people have been doing amazing things in speech and debate and it's an awesome activity. But I think as times grow and like times change, a lot of students are under a lot more pressure when it comes to speech and debate. And I can't specifically speak on what, you know, Oprah may have been doing in her high school years uh, with speech and debate, but I, but I can't say that in 2019 and when this episode comes out, 2020, you know, 
there is a lot more pressure on students to be the best at everything. Like if you if you want to get into Harvard, you got to do four sports, nine extracurricular activities, get a four point seven GPA, and all of this, you know. And it's so much. And I think that that makes a lot of students try so hard to do this activity and to do it so well does take a lot of time. And I want to ask you, like, um, are you seeing that same thing, especially with your current demographic of students that you're working with, which would be college students? Is this an activity that you think people are putting too much time into? Or like, should they really work on like, balancing that time better? What's your take on that? Um, to be honest, I think like, uh, I want to start with the high school level first. Um, so I kind of think that when I debated in high school, it was mostly exclusively in the UDL. So we didn't really go to a lot of national tournaments. Like I didn't even know what TOC was, a tournament of champions when I was in high school. But, um, what I do know is that like, I put in a lot of time because I felt that it was something that was going to make my life better and something that I learned so much from. And like, you know, the people that were around me when I was in high school that were college debaters told me about all the benefits that it would do for you. when you get to college, you already know some of the topics and you take classes on stuff that really interests you. So I think that like, in some senses, when these kids are going to a lot of the national tournaments, I really feel like it is taking a lot of time right, from their lives. But yeah. I do think that that time is often very useful for them in the future, especially when we talk about and deal with race relations. It is a good introduction yes. for them to understand how the microcosm of debate will be definitely what they face in the world. But in the world, you don't really have a judge that can say you won or you lost um, and that you mostly will take a lot of losses in life um, because there's not always going to be a person who is an intermediary in that level. But I do think that a lot of the skills and the ability to learn about different topics, you know, are definitely things that will make people better humans as they get older. Um, And I do think, you know, the community does come at like some opportunity costs. Like if you want to do, you know, this sport at the highest levels, you probably can't do other things, right? Like you maybe can't do sports. You probably can't, you know, spend enormous amounts of time with family and friends as much as you want to, especially if they're not in debate because, you know, that's kind of the demand of it. Like I know that I was only in a couple of other activities when I was in high school, um, but they weren't as high demand as debate, like I was like, specifically, I was in Future Teachers of America or FTA. And I felt like that was something that helped me. I didn't really think I was gonna become a teacher, but it did help me in the future. Now, and when it comes to college debate, in some ways, I often think that I'm a little bit recycled with a lot of the arguments that exist. So I don't, I can't speak to every facet of the community itself, but I do think that at some levels um, on both sides, when it comes not both sides, but like multiple sides, when it comes to people that want to do critical arguments or straight up arguments or performance arguments, a lot of those arguments are starting to become a little bit recycled and not as new as they should be. But I think that 
that comes from people not investing that amount of brain power and effort into doing the craft because a lot of people at the end of the day will see this as a game right and yes true play the game in the way that is most beneficial to us and that will get us wins and i feel like when me and my department debated in college it wasn't necessarily always about winning because like we definitely lost a lot a lot a lot a lot i mean because people like to just jump to like oh but y'all won cita blah 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 and it's like that was a whole journey before we got there. And it was a lot of reading, a lot of work that we had to do because we were taking losses on similar arguments that we were doing. So I think that people need to put more time in the craft of college debate to be more innovative and to change and have more difference and have a diversity of arguments as opposed to like just going with what everybody else is saying and just making minor tweaks to it. Sure, so, okay. You know, that, I mean, that, there are some debaters that are changing and doing a lot more innovative things. Not to say they're not, but you know, sometimes when you start to see like policy to people, like straight up people do their ass, they're usually doing the same fucking ass with different advantages, but the same ass. So it's just like this boring, boring, boring. That, <laughs> that totally makes sense. Okay, definite. I can hundred percent understand that. Um, yeah, that's okay. Good answer there. Um, I think. Now, I think it's a good time to kind of go into the next part of what I wanted to talk about, especially because you already went to it. And I mean, it's 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 innate for us, you know, like as as both being, you know, black speech and debaters, coaches and stuff like that. We we got to talk about, you know, the elephant in the room, specifically that black elephant in the room. And it's, you know, about race. Um, and, you know, it's a it's an interesting question because, you know, there are a ton of people that are like, you know, hey, it's 2020, racism doesn't exist anymore. Like, you guys don't have to, you know, struggle with this and things of that nature. But I think that, especially when you look at certain microcosms of, you know, different things like speech and debate being its own little uh, micro community there, you know, what, like, we still see so much, like, prejudices and racism, racist things, I guess, that happen within the community. And, uh, I think that I have this conversation a decent amount because I'm always trying to figure out what we can do to change the community. And that's uh, such a struggle because I don't think that there's a truly easy fix, but I, but I really want to come to that conclusion. Like, um, I guess I'm interested in hearing your opinion about like, do you think that there is a way for us to like, what's the best way for us? Like, by next year to have racism prejudices fixed like it doesn't have to be a hundred percent but what do you think that there's a way to make that happen in that amount of time to like like change the race relations or people just being like racist in debate i i guess i would say i would say like you know i would say more focus on the people being racist in debate like how can we like oh change that and i (laughs) <laughs> I, I kind of I honestly I'm taking a little bit more of a pessimist stance these days but more so Fair. situational pessimism because I feel like there are people that you can reach and that you can change the truth of how they view the world but there are some people that you just can't and that yeah spending a lot of time trying to change them is not something that you know the burden black and brown folks should necessarily have to have or just people of color in general but that's a good point for me i like 
that it just happens. And then like specifically when I look at another microcosm of the bigger, larger society, as in like the gay community, like, yeah, they're hella racist, like in so <laughs> many ways. And it's just like, you would think that like, oh, like since you are from an aggrieved community that you probably would not like be like racist against black folks or be so anti-black. But this, the problem is that they actually are and they're fine with saying it. And they think that they can level and boil it down to like, well, it's just a matter of preference that yeah. I choose to not engage with or be around or sexually engage with black people. And it's just like, that's racist. And I don't <laughs> really know why you think that's okay. And then there's other people that try to justify it. But as long as you're not flat out saying, oh, you a nigga, like, then that's like, yeah. oh, it's not racist. But the moment people want to point to extreme examples of like very like direct, like confrontational forms of racism, but they don't really understand that those are not the most like common anymore post like the fucking seventies. Like, you know, True. it's just like a lot of this stuff has become subtle. It has become ways in which people can say things without saying them. And it's just like, come on, like y'all have to think about like that this stuff is real. And, you know, people like to gaslight folks that want to call out racism and say, oh, that's just all in your head. Oh, you're just really aggressive. You're just really like angry. And it's just like, yo, like you can't really sit up and tell people that their experiences are just not true when they exactly. live them every day. Like that's that's such a good point. And I mean, I feel like I feel like that's a, hopefully a good reminder to even the audience. I feel like, every, like no matter who you are, I think we all accidentally at times get caught up in that. Whether we're talking about you know like somebody who's different than you in some way, we forget that like people have these, like even if it's an anecdotal experience, it's still their experience, and like you as a person don't have any like true right to like negate their experience yeah and, I mean, uh, because some people i mean i feel sorry no go ahead that, please like some people think that you know they don't realize that in certain conditions folks that exist in a certain social location are able to give permission to say when something is racist and when something is not like this is kind of why like we see like people getting so uproared about like the the you know, the Virginia shit that happened. Um, yeah. What's that? Charlottesville? Because a white woman uh-huh. died, right? But imagine if that was, like, a black person. Do you really think they would be like, oh, my God. Like, this is so crazy, right? No, because yeah. it's like all this stuff has been happening forever. And, like, it's just, like, all these instances of racism and way that white people try to do stuff that moves them into a more position of dominance or position of advantage like this stuff has been happening and when people get caught then it's just like oh my god like that's the whole stuff about like the admission scandals like come on do you really (laughs) think that that is new that has been here and black people have been knowing that's been here like and there's probably even some black people that didn't pay to get some of their students in there but like oh yeah you know predominantly i think the wealth that exists in this nation is mostly white people because of other institutions that have allowed them to get rich like you know moonshine and other things of that nature but like, yeah that's just a thing and so i don't know i just think that at the end of the day i don't really think that racism will go away i think that people if we place it and we don't talk about it as much 
is going to grow and we're still going to have anomalies and folks like Trump that are going to like incite people to yeah you know, that's very true yeah yeah I think um I think that that's such a good point it's it's a I don't know I guess I guess we'll see in the future but I think but I do think overall uh the greatest point really here is if we if we stop talking about it it's going to grow like you just can't you can't stop talking about it because it's still not fixed and at some point we have to continue to have those conversations and try to find I guess I guess to me I guess the closest we can get to a utopia world is I guess people are st- can still be racist, just not openly racist. I guess, like I mean, like that's. I mean, that, to I be honest, the- I would much <laughs> rather them be racist outwardly. Really? Like I just really would because it's just like I don't need you smiling in my face every day and you calling me a nigga behind my back. Like I, I don't I, need I, that. I guess I guess that makes sense to me though. I'm always kind of the whole like ignorance is bliss. Like if if I just see a smiling face, I'm like, great, yay! I know this person is good, and I don't, I never think about it again, you know. But that totally makes sense that you know you don't want those people like smiling, faking, right? Because that's the thing. Also, yeah, it's like well, there was white people before Trump got elected. It was like, oh my god, I would never vote for him ever, never, never. But yeah, overwhelmingly, um, there's something that happened, and of course, given the secrecy and the way that we don't like force people to tell us who they vote for because we're in a democratic society, we will never know. There are some people that were secretly loving Trump, not going to his rallies, but donating money and yep. like voting. And then it's like, oh no, I can't. You, I would never like, what? <laughs> like, why that's, even act like that? Like, you know, that's not even true. That is so true. I, I just read this thing actually that was interesting to me. I mean, honestly. Uh, the biggest problem is probably the amount of people that vote. Like when I read this thing that said literally right now, if every single person from 18 to like 24, every single 18 to 24 year old voted, we would easily change the the scope of the of the elections. And it would, whichever way those 18 to 24 year olds voted, that's exactly what we would be. Everybody else would have no say. If well, everybody else stayed the same, but the 18 to 24 year olds all voted. Well, we probably got to get rid of electoral college first. So, yeah, some gerrymandering <laughs> and some other things. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> uh, like, I'm glad we don't. Yeah, I'm glad we don't do that in other. I'm glad that the elections are so far the only thing I can really think of where the voting system is that bad. Um, but, um, like, kind of leading with that. Um, you know, looking at those racism and prejudices, I, I mean, I could totally spend all day and talk about a bunch of the situations in the past. Um, I was very honored to, I think in November, October, I had Ernest Cho Mickey on and we talked about, um, African-American students as well. And like what their, uh, like specific situations almost, you know, like, um, as a person who has also dealt with some things that I felt blatantly racist and prejudiced in speech and debate, like just to me myself, you know, um, it's really interesting, you know, seeing like, um, I don't know if you had the opportunity to listen to that episode, but one of the things that really popped out was I was telling Ernest about um, how there was a situation literally where um, back in, actually that was that last, that was the year before. So I think the 2018 um nsda nationals for dramatic interpretation um Mm -hmm. i think the finals was like 
three or four uh, African-American students. And uh, there was a specific coach that like walked past and literally said something like, I'm, I'm, used, I'm, I'm not, it's just, this isn't verbatim, but it was very similar to along the lines of like, like, man, if like my kids would have talked about their black struggle, if they would have been black, then they would have been able to, you know, get to the national stage and be, you know, that and stuff like that. And uh, basically, I um, mean, I know Ernest told me something that a student, I think, said something that was very similar to you. And it's just like all of these people are like, well, now that it's 2019 and we have to be more accepting the only pieces that are actually going to win nationals for stuff like DI, for example, is going to be the the gay piece and the black piece, you know, and the I'm a minority and I struggle piece. And I'm like, and oh, that's so upsetting to me. But the <laughs> um, thing is, is that uh, about that is that like, but you got to think about who is the audience and who is listening to those pieces. Like that's something that is in them because in a lot of cases, let's keep it real. Like some of these white people that are listening to speeches, oftentimes are like, you know, I'm going to like rank this high in some instances because I feel a certain way about my white guilt. And that's like, yeah. that's part <laughs> yeah, of it, you know? And, and it's like, it's not to say that's the only thing because some of them might've had an experience with certain things that are spoken about, but in of a lot course. of ways, black white people oftentimes want to alleviate their guilt by giving black and Brown folks like shallow, lukewarm, hollow prizes that are meant to like, symbolize something in good faith and without actually changing the structure that has created that necessity for charity or good faith in the first place. And it's just like, that's kind of the problem here. It's like, I don't want your like, your, your fucking pity. I want you to actually change the structures that make it harder for black folks to actually live in this world. Like, you know, that's that's, the thing. That's so good. That's so good because the amount of times that someone has said some crap to me, like, like, dude, is it really right? Ra- like, I, I, like, I never thought that that was a real thing that people would say. But I've literally had at least two conversations in my lifetime where somebody was like, "Dude, you had a black president. Like, how is it still racist?" And I'm just like, "That is like, like the fact." And I am glad that Obama had the uh, opportunity to be president. That's awesome. But like, Obama was basically the equivalent of like some kid going all the way to nationals because of their black piece and it was like a white guilt kind of thing like i I really feel that like i feel like a lot of people who voted for obama was like we need to get this black person in there because this is our opportunity to feel like we are giving back to their people and like and it's like it's it's the equivalent of a pity award and i'm like no, don't don't give us a black president. Like honestly, if if you would have told me that racism and prejudices would have been fixed, but we didn't have a black president, I'd rather take that. I'd rather have some I don't know some old white guy president as long Bernie. as the uh, yeah <laughs> Bernie. yeah exactly as long as the other stuff was fixed. You know, um, maybe I, I really feel like maybe Lizzie might have a, a chance at that. I, I really, you know, I don't know. I, 
I honestly, I, I'm, I'm really interested right now because I haven't gotten a chance to look that much at Lizzie. But right now, my main person is uh, Yang, bro. Like, I'm, I'm so hashtag Yang. Yang yeah, right he's now. really idealist. <laughs> like, I really, I really love his idealism. Yeah. But I don't, I don't, I really don't think he has like a way to a lot of those things he thinks. I mean, I that's think cool. You're 100 you know, right about that. <laughs> I love it. I love it, and. You know, I feel like some of these Democrats need to just be like, you know, we're going to come to this agreement. Like once one of us gets it, all these people up here are just going to be cabinet members. Like just leave it at that. Like, yeah, they're going to make Kamala the attorney general. OK, like yeah. <laughs> that's what she want to be. Um, you know, I don't know. You know who is going to get it by in a warning, but I know it. But I don't trust Buttigieg. I'm, mm-mm. No, nope. <laughs> that's <laughs> I already told you about that gay community and the white gays. Yep. I can't trust him. <laughs> I can't because I feel like at the end of the day, he's gonna fall back on that white shit, just like most gay white men do. <laughs> Is that we fucking with you and your oppression, and so far as we fucking you, and then we're gonna like move on when it's time to recenter our whiteness and how we've been victims. So uh-huh. I'm not bumping with Buddha Church at all. Nope, oh, nope, okay, nope. Talk. To all my gay white coaches listening, please don't don't get too offended to turn off the podcast. Yeah, they shouldn't get offended because you know they know they know what's up. Like they know that there's people in this community who are white gays who are not fucking that's with black true. people in that way. Like they have to know. Like that's, they see yeah, it on true. their profiles. They see it in spaces. They see like if you even look at like the the circles in which a lot of white gay men are in, none of them really include black men except for that one light skinned man. <laughs> who is mixed or that He's one like... or the one very dark skin Dante or 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 Lawrence or or Andre right and Andre oh, he so he speaks so good he speaks so proper you know but I mean and it's not to say that that person is bad but it's to say that like you know they and they take us in and so far as it like makes them feel comfortable I guess no, that but, that totally makes sense. I um, when you said as soon as you said that about the hat throwing Andre here, you know, I mm-hmm. thought about Obama and like I remember like I think it was I don't I don't remember who I was having that conversation with, but basically it was like they were saying like, dude, if Obama if Obama even slightly messed up in his public speaking abilities just a little bit, people would have automatically thrown him off if he might not have been president, like. Because the only way for the the groups of people that accepted him to accept him was that he had to basically look like what people try to call a white person, you know, proper and Mm -hmm. like speaking well and things of that nature. And the only way he would win is by being able to do that. I I love that this also became a uh, political podcast. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm going to have to throw that. We're in very political times, man. I'm going to have to throw that explicit, what's the explicit sign on my, Mm -hmm. on this episode. (laughs) And be like, hey, have a little disclaimer, like, um, just letting you know there's going to be some some F-bombs thrown in, some stuff like that. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, it's not that, caution. I definitely, <laughs> it's definitely not that I dislike any group of people. I just think that some yeah. people are a little bit, you know, wearing the rose-colored glasses in a lot of ways. Yeah. And they just that, not, they just not seeing it. And it's like when people like me like, want to call it out, it's just like, oh, my God, like, you're so aggressive. Like, why are you talking about these things? It's like, 
because like some people don't have the verbal fluency i guess to say it so eloquently like you want it to be said but also at the same time have a righteous indignation about it like because i think true that's what we need to have you know so yeah i i i totally agree with that that that, that definitely makes a lot of sense um you know i'm i'm gonna really quickly uh, talk to the audience you know uh, audience i hope you've been enjoying the episode so far um, I think we're actually going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. So stay tuned. We will be right back. All right. We are back. I am still here with Devin Cooper. We are having some very interesting conversations um, about a lot of things. Um, this episode <laughs> definitely turned a lot, and I love it. I love it. Um, as you all know, if you want to continue to stay in that conversation, I probably should have said that before, but if you want to uh, join that conversation, feel free to leave a comment down below on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this podcast, or just DM me on Instagram or my TikTok at The Forensics Guy. Um, I'm definitely having conversations in there, too, so uh, feel free to get at me. Um, now, we, I want to look at um, some other specific things as we've been talking about the black community. Um, I think that's kind of been the big focus here and just a few questions. So you, you, you were as a student, you were a UDL student too, right? Yes. Your whole life. Urban debate league. Yep. Awesome. And uh, with that, um, I'm always interested to, uh, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see, um, I think the, the financial effects of that. So I don't like, I mean, what, I guess I guess my best question here is did you ever notice like as a UDL student like did you notice like any type of like I guess I guess like financial disparity between like you and other students who were doing debate like like were yeah. there ever yeah you know I saying? mean I did and I can definitely say that I was definitely one of the privileged kids, right? I mean, okay. I, I mean, of course, I did grow up in Baltimore, which is, you know, still in the hood. But like, at the yeah, end day, my mom still owned her home, right? And okay. that's not something that you know a lot of, you know, people can necessarily have said during that time. Very true. And older, and I, you know, I didn't realize, you know, that was a thing. Like, oh, people don't own their homes. But, like, because I was just always brought up in the household, my mom, like, she struggled. My mom definitely was on Section 8 at a point in time in her life, you know, and on welfare. But at the end of the day, like, she made, worked hard at Johns Hopkins Hospital to get me all the things that I needed. And so, you know, I didn't really see hardship, hardship, you know, once I got to the high school age. Like, it definitely existed before, right? And I didn't know. And my mom recently tells me a lot of stuff about, you know, what she had to go through. I mean, as I remember sometimes that I do remember eating a lot of, um, what do you call it? Milk and, uh, what is it? Wait, milk and... Milk and I think it was, it's something that I just, I just got sick of it after a while. But I, I mean, I started to realize that that was some of the go-to things that we had. The struggle foods. Yeah, <laughs> right. But, you know, I didn't realize that. And so I think that that was something that, you know, a lot of the students that I was debating with had that as a daily struggle. But I didn't really see it, see it until like, you know, sometimes I would go home with some of them or like I would realize that like, oh, they don't really have a lot of things that I have. And it's just like 
I had to think about that and be like, damn, like this is weird. That makes um, sense. Yeah. And so I, you know, I definitely can understand like the differences. And like when I work for some of these bigger schools and I'm like, wow, these kids have what? And they, they, they do what? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, you're going to a school that's like forty thousand dollars. Yeah, like <laughs> at, at peak level, my mom made forty thousand dollars. Like what? I I totally get that, and I mean, like uh, I'm not sure exactly how the demographics at your college are now, but like it's it's very interesting to see you know those like uh, the differences of you know what you grew up versus like sometimes the kids you're working with. You know, like mm-hmm. I like. I was pretty confident, even at the school that I was at last year. I was like, "Man, I think I, I'm pretty sure most of these kids make more money than I do, and just their allowance." Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, and so, yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole dynamic there that's uh, very interesting to see. And I think, I think that I'm, I feel, I feel, I feel what you're saying in terms of that, like, like still, like I kind of felt the privilege of like not necessarily being too mentally burdened you know when i was a student doing speech and debate mm-hmm. um because you know f- our finances weren't there either my mom was renting an apartment stuff like that but i but i don't think i ever like had to like you know i never oh no never, our like, parents this- our parents are really good at hiding exactly. the oppression that we were living in it's pretty oh, amazing big time. actually because i feel like if that was <laughs> me if that was me i'd be having hearts on hearts with my seven-year-old child like this is so hard. <laughs> right. Because they, they, my grandparents, my grandparents on my father's side, and then like my, my mom particularly were definitely good at concealing like things about the outside world and yeah. kept me like really sheltered a lot so where I wouldn't have to deal with certain things. But, you know, at the end of the day, I still saw them when I went to like my high school. I mean, True. you know, I kind of went to one of the worst high schools in Baltimore, but I don't I don't even think that is a something that qualifies that school like it being worse. I just think that it was different and there was a different demographic of students that were given certain things that they had to work with, you know. And yeah. and if I lived in Baltimore and I say where I went to high school, people would be like, oh, you do what? And it's just like that shouldn't <laughs> be like the response, like because I mean, to be honest, like a lot of the students that. Not a lot, but quite a few that I went to school with and that were years below me and above me. Some of them are not alive or they're dead. I mean, they're in jail or they're not doing things that are the most productive or some of them are strung out on drugs. And it's just like, I get why that would be a thing. But, you know, when you don't have people investing in you and saying that you was kind, you was smart, you was important. Right. That's not something that you start to think about is that your self-worth starts to get wrapped up in you trying to get instant gratification and then you know then here comes social media like a year later and that becomes a thing it's really interesting um i, think- I mean no my space was still there i'm sorry but then oh, facebook yeah, that, and all yeah, that yeah, shit came yeah, <laughs> in yeah. black planet <laughs> yes i remember oh, oh, black planet. uh i, oh, I was God. i was never on black planet but um i don't know if you remember I think it was seriously only in Milwaukee and Atlanta. It was this. What? It was this thing called. Uh, hold on. The original name was Paxed, and then it changed to something called Blink. B L N K. Oh, it was I a, don't so, know. It was a, It was just like it, it felt just like MySpace mixed with Facebook, and 
I'm so confident that the only people that knew about it were like Milwaukee and Atlanta. Like, every, that is so weird. Probably, but I remember that when, you know, Black Planet came about. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, not when it came about, because I don't remember, but I remember being on it. But yeah, they also created Mi Gente, which was the Latinx version. And yes. then they had Asian <laughs> Avenue, which was the Asian version. I was like, oh my God, I can't. <laughs> uh, so. I, I, like, that automatically just reminds me of um, the episode. There was that, I don't know if you've seen the show Broad City, uh, but there was that episode where they took what's, uh, the one girl Abby's drawings and it was supposed to be for a, a, a commercial for a dating website. For It was called like whitesonly.com. Oh my God. <laughs> and I, uh, it was so funny. <laughs> it was the greatest yeah. thing ever. Um, okay, but, but yeah, like, I mean, um, I, you know, it's, it is really amazing, like, how great, like, our parents, grandparents, and things of that nature were able to hide that, and it, it made us, you know, like, even though we saw it in school, and we, you know, like, other parents were hiding it, too, you know, we just, we just went with the flow, like, it was, like, Mm -hmm. the amount of times that I know, you know, like, even friends in high school that all had the Jordans and stuff, they, they were just like us, probably the same. Yeah, I, I ain't you never know. had Jordans until I was like 26. I, <laughs> I, my first pair of Jordans were a pair of Jordans that I, did I, did I buy them? I literally think I bought them from my friend. Uh, mm-hmm. Shout out to Dane if he, I, I haven't talked to him in years, but uh, he was like the only white kid on our block. The only white kid on our block. And uh, it was so funny because the one thing he did, uh, I don't even know if he remembers it, but, like, his, his like, you know, Hanes T-shirts? Mm-hmm. Like, the white T-shirts? Like, you'd wear them under your shirt or something. And he never wore it twice. He would wear it and throw it away. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I remember and that. I was like, I was like, what? Like, or sometimes was, they had the white beaters, white beaters or whatever they call them. Yeah, those, shirts, A those, shirts. Yeah, the A shirts. <laughs> like those were the that was the moment where I was like, whoa, some people do got money. Like he was literally throwing away mm-hmm. the white shirts after. Like it was crazy, and uh, man, it was like, um, I guess. But even with that, you know, um, I saw like like obviously a lot of friends who you know are not alive right now people that i you know paying homage to because i'm like man i you know they were on their own paths and it was unfortunate and i i think that we can put that back to speech and debate um i mean honestly you could put anything in there but but obviously my love for speech and debate comes out but students need to be they need to be introduced to something like speech speech and debate and even if they don't love speech and debate you know basketball football whatever they need something because I'm, I'm, there came a point where I just got so tired of seeing, you know, like young teens and things of that nature just dying by the hands of things like, you know, violence and all types of stuff. And like, it's you know, true, but it's just like I oftentimes fear black people coming to this space now, like in a lot of ways because of all the stuff that they have to deal with. And I feel like somebody who really predicted a lot of the issues and problems that black people would face was this okay. article by um, <clears throat> Shelton K. Hill that he okay. did like in the early mid nineties. And he was talking about like how Eurocentric, I mean, sorry, Eurocentric ways that people look at speech and also debate 
are hurdles that become, you know, kind of burdens for black people when they enter them. Um, and so they like specifically he talked about like in policy debate that policy debate was very much so geared towards how white men perform themselves in certain spaces and how they talk about certain issues, right? How black yeah. people talk about them a little differently. And he definitely was going in on speech when he was like the speech arena in itself models the public speaking classroom where um, Eurocentric ways of communicating are valued and oftentimes celebrated, especially when black people do them so well. Right. And he was definitely talking about like how black people oftentimes have to code switch in order to be seen as not too hood or too preachy or too aggressive to their white opponents. And it was just like, that's literally what is happening today. I see this shit played out. Right. And when I entered college and I didn't really understand what that article was talking about, you know, my freshman year of college, which is when I was exposed to it. But I was just like what does he mean by this? And then like, as I got older, I start to see like all this stuff where he was like, you know, the white competitors will be surprised when black competitors have a victory or, you know, there'll be backlash for the way that you speak about certain arguments. And I was just like, wow, this is, um, this is prophecy here. That's some 1984 stuff. (laughs) Yeah. But I also had the privilege to meet him like and like uh, oh. like I think two years ago, I was so honored and I didn't know and I got so excited. I think you call it like fangirl or whatever. Yeah, I fangirled out over Shelton Cahill and I was just like, man, we use your arguments like so much when we were debating in college. And it's just like he was just right. He was just right about everything he wrote in that article. And it was just like crazy to see. Like that stuff's still happening today, right? Yeah. How speech kids are definitely talking about how they have to talk about certain pieces or they have to speak in a certain way or they have to dress in a certain way so they're not seen as like too hypersexual or too like, you know, too aggressive in certain ways and not wearing certain colors. Like, and I'm just like, wow, this is, this is intense. That is really interesting. Um, especially from the like the idea of like i guess clothing and speech and debate i guess there's a few avenues i can go down and talk about but i don't fully know where we need to stand on the whole idea of like what kind like of professionalism yes like professionalism yeah like, i mean I, I just think that like the difference between speech well well speech in college is very different than speech in high school and you know debate in high school is very different from debate in college because in some areas where you have the local leagues that are doing policy debate they definitely want these kids to dress up and to wear certain things and it's just like oftentimes they don't understand that some of these kids that actually want to do speech and debate are not they don't have the money to get those things all the time right and it's just like well if you want them to wear that shit won't you buy it like buy it for them and have them and support them and i feel like even and i hate to say this but like when i was at fresno and i was looking at these kids and like trying to like figure out ways to help them and make them better i got met with a lot of backlash from the people who are running the local league you know and i was just like frustrated because i'm just like Y'all not handling these black kids well. Like, y'all just, like, putting them out here looking all crazy and saying stuff that, you know, is not relating to their experiences. And, uh, you know, and there was one black kid that reached out to me, which is Scholar Harris. 
um, sorry to name drop, but no, go you know, <laughs> but you know, and I coached <laughs> them, and so um, it was it was a wonderful experience for me that somebody actually like saw my coaching to be valid in the area because they definitely suppressed it and definitely treated wow. me like I was like the redheaded stepchild, um, or more so this black dude that was coming to like kill their women or something. Yeah, um, but. I was just like, come on. So, and I, I definitely see it. And I was like, and the, the code switching thing is very much so real is that we can't say the things that we want to say, but at the same time, some white people feel very comfortable in saying, Oh, what's up, yo, or hi, yo, or hi, brother. Like what? Are, why yeah. are you talking to me like that? As if I talk that way. I mean, not to say it's bad to talk that way, but it's just like, why do you think that you get to talk to me like that? Like that, you that's, don't. Like, that's really interesting. I think, but um, that that exists in and out of debate. True. Like I, I, I just can imagine. Like sometimes when I go to the counter, they be like, "Hello, brother." I'm like, "Why are you saying, <laughs> bro- why are you saying, brother, like that?" Number one, he starts uh, raising his fist. He's like, "We're all one, brother." <laughs> right. I'm just like, this is crazy right now. So. <laughs> that is that is great. I think. Um, I think that gives. <laughs> I'm totally going to. Uh, obviously shamelessly promote um that probably end up being the advertisement too anyway in the middle of the sponsored video thing here um but you know a lot of people know about i mean at the time you're listening to this podcast it will be out you know um so for those who know i'm creating an online speech and debate league for students um and uh, it's going to be very interesting uh for speech kids they'll be able to submit videos um, through an online platform, um, and yeah, and be able to be judged based off of how they compete for speech and debate. Um, so it'll, I'm, I think the biggest thing that I'm looking for, which is kind of what we talked about a tiny bit, but, um, I really want some very skilled judges, like no offense. I love, I love that parents are willing to volunteer, uh, to help out at tournaments and things of that nature. But I really want to create this as a platform to make sure that every student can just do speech and debate and not have to worry about, like, the weird intricacies of, like, did I really reach this, like, 45-year-old mom judge with six kids in a Tesla van? And, uh, you know, like, did it, did it work out in the right way? I want, mm-hmm. like, truly, truly trained judges, and I'm making sure that I'm able to do that. So, obviously, when you do uh, see this and you're listening to this episode, if this is the first episode you listen to, then uh, definitely go out and, ch- and check it out, um, the Online Speech and Debate League. Um, yeah, it's going to be – yeah, it's going to be really interesting because uh, I want to change a lot of the scopes for the way we judge, the judges that I have. I want a very, very diverse pool of judges – um, and I want a lot of people to be a lot more conscious in the way that they judge too, uh, which is really great because I feel like I can I can have the the final say on that now and make it so that like we can make everything feel almost as equitable as possible. Um, so I'm definitely trying to change the scope of speech and debate for all. So we'll we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. <laughs> um, but uh, my I guess my 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 last question is um, if if there was one thing that you could do right now, like if there was one thing that could change right now to change the activity for the future, what's the one thing that needs to change like tomorrow that you think will change speech and debate for the better for the rest of our lives? Mm, that's a tough one. Um, I, 
I don't, I can't really locate that, which would change it the most. But I mean, to be honest, I think that it all is about the adults in a sense, like how they treat children and students that are trying to come to their, their growth and finding their truth about how they want to express themselves in the world. So like a lot of these local leagues, um, i.e. like Chassa. They need to be a little bit more open-minded to the way that children want to exist when it comes to speech and debate. I mean, I yeah. also think that even in UDLs, the way that people um, see those children, it should not just be about, oh, we need to teach them how to read. It should be about trying to harness their competitive ability to make you know, themselves known in ways that they want to, not just That's to be like, point. you know, I just think that those things need to change the way that the adults start to garner how these children exist, you know? Um, and so I think that you can change how, uh, a lot of these adults treat children and see them, then that will also ultimately make them better adults because they'd have to grow up feeling like they joined this activity and they already felt suppressed and felt ignorant to like a lot of the things that exist. Um, and you know, for me, I didn't know what a K was until I was like, a senior in high school i still um, barely know <laughs> right but you know in that sense people are still kind of like fuck the k and it's like come on man like these yeah. are regular arguments people make yeah. them in society all the time and they're not seen as a k true i can see that that's a good point i think cha- i think changing that could potentially change things for the better in the future um i have I, I, I like what you said a little bit about, like, you know, Chas and some other things. I have seen, I'm actually pretty impressed. Like, not Oh, but believe me, it's league. not just, it's not, it's not just Chas, it's all yeah, the local not, leagues. I just don't know the name of all of them. Exactly. So. That's, what, that's what I was going to say, though. Like, I have seen some try to do some more things that are trying to be more open. I mean, NSDA is still doing some really great stuff. We all know, every, like, in the grand scheme of things, you can't get it all right, but you have to try. And I definitely can give props to a lot of little orcs for trying. But some definitely have to step their game up, move a little bit faster, and get with the times. So um, we shall, yeah, see what happens with that. Um, to everyone listening, I hope you really, really, really enjoyed the episode. Um, it's, it's been a great one. It's been a very, very interesting one. Um, and I am so, so once again honored to have Devin on. Thank you so much, Devin, for being on and kind of sharing your insight and giving us your, um, your vision into speech and debate and how it looks for a lot of different things in a lot of different ways for people. Oh, th- um, so thank you for having um, me. Yeah, of course. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's an honor. Um, so for everybody listening, as usual, make sure you share this episode. Um, you know, put it, share it everywhere. Give it five stars on iTunes, Stitcher. iTunes is probably the most important, but all of the places that you listen to podcasts, give it five stars um, if you like it. And I hope you all continue to listen. And um, yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, I'm pretty bad at outros like always, like I have been for the last 99 episodes. But um, yeah, I hope you all have a great day and I will talk to y'all later. Peace out.